The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Unto us from on high, reaching down into the darkest night, deepest night, to the world hope has come. In the dark, the light of life has dawned. Please make your way to Luke chapter 1 in your Bibles. Christmas is a complicated time, isn't it? It has a complicated history, if you've ever spent some time looking at that. And our contemporary celebrations can be very involved and exhausting, can't they? Yet I'm convinced that Christmas still is a gracious provision. The gift of this season is that it provides us with an annual opportunity to remember with rejoicing that the light of life has dawned. His coming illuminated the past and the path we walk in the present towards a future that is bright beyond anything we could hope or imagine. So for the next few minutes, I want to invite you with me, let's clear the clutter in our heads and in our hearts. You might be coming in with some administrative clutter. You know, there are things you're trying to organize. You might be coming in with the hangover from work still because you were pushing hard to the last moment. You might be coming in with some relational baggage this morning. Just relationships that have been hard. And I want to invite you just would you just lay all of that down at Jesus' feet? Would you just offer that to him as a present because he can handle it? You know, he'll take that from us. What I want to invite you to do is listen with attention and imagination to God's word in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be focused on verses 26 to 45. Now, in this passage, there is much to notice, much to marvel at, and much to rejoice in. No, my sole hope, I struggled through this week. I was tired, I was distracted, and I'm, I'm starting to pray those desperate prayers that like, please, Lord, I need a sermon for Sunday. It's Christmas morning, come on, of all Sundays of the year to be just running on fumes towards. I just felt like, yeah. But that got me praying in a certain way. And my, my, my desperate prayer is that through this narrative, and, 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 and though it's a, quite a familiar narrative to many of you, God by His Spirit will draw you into it with a heart full of wonder and worship, and that you will savor Christ in a way that causes your weary heart to rejoice. Let's read then from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 45. And I can't do it like Eden and, and, and Ben. I'm sorry, I, I saw them and... Now, it's best I don't try because that wouldn't work. So Luke 1, 26 to 45. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled. At the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, and, sorry, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. A couple of days ago, I took the opportunity to look back at the sermons that we've preached for you over the past year. We covered a lot. In the main, we preached through Lamentations, Philippians, and a number of Psalms. We also preached through the second half of our statement of faith. Most recently, we launched into Ecclesiastes. What we did not do this past year, with the exception of Sheldon's sermon last week, is preach any biblical narratives. The last time I preached a narrative was December 26th, last, uh, last year. So, thank God for Christmas, huh? The late R.C. Sproul, a gifted preacher, would recommend to preachers that we look for the drama in the text and bring that out in our sermon. Well, in this text, the drama is unmissable because it is everywhere and it is nonstop. That doesn't necessarily make it easy to preach, but it certainly hits me as a very different challenge from others we've taken on this year. This story involves an angelic announcement and an explanation given to an unsuspecting and perplexed, yet humble and faith-filled girl. It also features the exuberant meeting of two most unlikely mothers. And the Holy Spirit, who often does his work in the scriptures behind the scenes, steps into the spotlight in this story. So here's my attempt to summarize what's going on here. God moved to bring his son Jesus into the world in a most extraordinary way, gracing the life of a young woman in fulfillment of his covenant promises. Let me say it again. God moved to bring his son Jesus into the world in a most extraordinary way, gracing the life of a young woman in fulfillment of his covenant promises. God is conspicuously on the move in the events recorded here, sending a messenger to and bestowing favor on Mary. And through the unique work of his spirit, he gave the gift of his son and the gift of recognition, insight, and joy to Elizabeth and Mary. This story plays out in two scenes, complete with a scene change, so I don't see any compelling reason for me to preach it in any other way. 
So let's call scene one the message Mary received, and scene two the magnificent meeting of two unlikely mothers. So, the message Mary received. Please follow me in your Bibles. We're going to be in verses 26 through 38. Our narrative begins with a time marker that telegraphs the fact that the story Luke just told in the preceding verses will intertwine with the story he's going to tell now. The sixth month doesn't refer to June. No, it refers to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. As the angel Gabriel promised her husband Zechariah, despite her age and infertility, by God's miraculous intervention, she had become pregnant with a son who would play a significant role in God's plan of salvation. Now Gabriel is sent by God with another message, but this time to a different destination and a different recipient. Gabriel is sent by God, the living God who made and sustains and governs the universe. This wasn't some initiative that originated in heavenly middle management or a task that was delegated down the chain. What was about to play out came straight from the mind and heart of God. It was one thing for Gabriel to be sent to the temple in the capital city of Jerusalem to bring a message to a priest and his wife. But Nazareth and Mary? Many, if not most of us, would be familiar with the town of Nazareth. But what we need to remember is that Nazareth would not have featured in any travel shows of the time if it, they had had them. It couldn't even justify an episode of Hill and Gully Ride. If you're not familiar, ask your parents. Parents, if you're not familiar, ask your grandparents. <laughs> yeah, that was a little while back, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. The point is, Nazareth was nowhere of any distinction, which made the young resident that Gabriel went to speak to no one of any distinction in the eyes of the world. That's why one commentator points out, God does not so much enter a story as make a story. Before Luke mentions Mary's name, he tells us two things about her, thereby underscoring their importance. Twice he mentions that she's a virgin. And he says that she has been legally pledged in marriage to a man named Joseph who was a descendant of Israel's great king David. Luke is preparing us for a miracle which far surpasses the one experienced by Elizabeth. And he's stoking the fires of expectation for a long-promised descendant from the line of David. Now, when Gabriel had appeared to Zechariah in the temple months before this, Zechariah was troubled by his mere presence. Gabriel had said nothing but just seeing him beside the altar, Zechariah started, got the shivers. But here, Luke draws our attention. What Luke draws our attention to is that Mary was deeply disturbed by what he said when he greeted her. The commentator Tom Schreiner explains, Mary is attempting to discern the meaning and significance of what is happening to her. God's grace is on me? How so? The Lord is with me? If the Lord being with her meant that she was being given some special task, as it meant when it was said to others in the past, what, well, what could that be? If Gabriel's words were supposed to be a mirror, the person they reflected were, was unrecognizable to Mary. So Gabriel had to calm her fears and explain what he meant. As the commentator David Garland explains, the grace Mary received from God is the gift of a son. But this was not just any son. Gabriel said a number of things about this child, making it clear that he would be like no other before him or after him, even John the Baptist. This boy will be uniquely from God. 
his conception in the womb of a virgin, and even his name. And he will be great. Not great before the Lord, as was said of John a few verses earlier, but intrinsically great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. In other words, he will come from heaven. As the scholar Mark Strauss points out, he is the Son of God from the point of conception. Tom Schreiner adds, his unique birth shows that he shares the identity and nature of the one true God. This son would be a king. This is a significant aspect of what Luke wants us, his readers, to understand about Jesus. Schreiner offers us this assistance. A major theme in the gospel is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, who fulfills the covenant made with David, which pledged that the Davidic dynasty would be everlasting. Jesus, Gabriel says, is given David's throne, signaling that he is the Davidic king. Put yourself in Mary's shoes for a moment. She was probably occupied with some daily domestic task, perhaps imagining with some hope and some trepidation what her life would be like as a married woman once the betrothal period to Joseph had ended. And suddenly, quite literally, everything for her was interrupted by this messenger from God with dizzying news that she would be having a baby who would be great and, and a king. And Okay, wait a minute. She'd be having a baby? Mary clearly got the fact that what Gabriel was announcing to her was not going to wait for the wedding. Hence, her question in verse 34. Now, when Zechariah questioned Gabriel, he was expressing skepticism. Mary was expressing understandable confusion. As Shrina explains, it was a humble attempt to discern what the angel could possibly mean since children are not conceived apart from a sexual relationship. Gabriel explains to her that the conception of her son would be a unique work of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who participated in the creation of the world out of nothing will create this child in her womb. And because of that, he will be called holy. Gabriel was asking Mary to believe something that was entirely impossible. So to help her to believe, he pointed out that someone close to her was already experiencing God's work in defiance of all normal expectations. Her relative Elizabeth was pregnant in her old age, as the text says. Elizabeth's pregnancy was a pointer to what Mary needed to believe. Nothing will be impossible with God. No, there's much to be fascinated by here and, and, and just awed by. I need to constrain myself to highlight only three truths. The first is this. God keeps his promises. God made a covenant with David hundreds of years before this point, including the impossible-sounding promise of a dynasty that would last forever. Those of you who've read the Bible know that the Davidic line seemed to have ended. Israel was taken into exile. They weren't even a nation anymore, much less to have a king in the Davidic line. And when they came back, they were under constant occupation by, by, by other world superpowers at the time. Now they were under Roman occupation. So where was God's promise of a Davidic king? See, God moved to fulfill that promise in the person of Jesus in a most unexpected and thoroughly supernatural way. Jesus is the only king who can reign forever because as God, he lives forever. All that was promised in the Old Testament has not yet come to pass. We still wait for the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. 
But the personal commitment that God demonstrated in the incarnation can help us to believe that He will keep all of His promises. Jesus has already done the hard part. He condescended to become human and followed the plan all the way to death and resurrection. What's left is a glorious return and a feast and a wedding. He will not be a no-show. God keeps His promises. So we can build our lives on that. Secondly, this passage helps us to see how worthy Jesus is of our worship, even at the point of His conception. You know, we live in a world where many people are admired because they became great. This morning, you can go and take a picture, if you'd like, beside the sign for the house of Don Dada. I don't know who Don Dada is, but clearly Don Dada had a party with all his friends to celebrate his greatness. So that, that's your Christmas gift from Grace Family Church. You can take a pic there by House of Don Dada. I don't know how you're going to post that one. But the point is, some people rise from humble beginnings. Jesus did not become great. He was great and became small. Yet in his smallness, he was the Son of God. That was impossible to see with human eyes as Mary carried him in pregnancy and carried him in arms. He was, as the songwriter puts it, veiled in flesh. So have you recognized who he really is? I suspect that we can sincerely believe in Jesus, that he's truly alive today and is a very present help in times of trouble, yet lose our sense of awe about him. Our daily troubles drive us in our need to Him, but they don't necessarily bring us to our knees in amazement. May the truth of the miraculous beginnings of His earthly life rekindle awestruck worship in our hearts. Here's the third thing I'll highlight. As unique and unprecedented as her story is, Luke wants us to see Mary as an example of how we must learn to respond to the strange ways of God's grace in our lives. Mary was naive. She knew that pregnancy was no picnic. You know, she grew up in a town with pregnant women around her. She saw what that was like. She saw women lose babies, you know. And she would have anticipated the scorn becoming pregnant while betrothed would bring her. In the Old Testament, if a woman who was betrothed became pregnant to another man, they would stone both of them. By New Testament days, they didn't necessarily do that, but your life was miserable. Matthew's gospel tells us that her husband-to-be, Joseph, had resolved to end their betrothal without a scene because he was a decent man and he didn't want to shame her until he got his own visit from an angel. Yet this was her response in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary was uniquely favored among all women, yet her response to God's plan for her is a compelling example for all disciples. What would it mean for you to be favored by God? Isn't it true that we instinctively think that it would mean that we would be able to have the life that we want? Wouldn't it mean that God is giving us what we want? Isn't that how we pray a lot of the time? God, can't I just get? Can't I just get a break? Can't I just get? We don't think of it as being thrust into a life we did not choose with hardships we don't want for ourselves. We don't think of it as being called to be servants, to pour out our lives for the sake of others. Later in this Gospel of Luke, Jesus would teach that we all share in the blessing that Mary received by trusting God the way Mary did. 
As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. We are blessed if we, like Mary, have been brought near to Jesus as his servants. We are blessed if our lives have been caught up in his life, in his plan of salvation. But we must recognize that we too are called to be his servants. This is Tom Schreiner. Mary responds as the model disciple, confessing and accepting that she is the Lord's servant. It is, it is hers not to command, but to obey. Not to prescribe, but to accept. Not to dictate, but to receive. She acknowledged the role given to her, recognizing that the best course of action is if her life plays out according to God's word. Ultimately, we are like Mary, servants of the Lord called upon to have the same humble spirit as hers. We too say to the Lord, may our lives be according to your word and your plan, not ours. At this point in our text, there are two departures. Gabriel leaves Mary having completed his assignment. And Mary, in verse 39, eagerly sets out to go visit Elizabeth. She wants to see what Gabriel has told her with her own eyes. And that sets up our next scene, the magnificent meeting of two unlikely mothers. Let's look at verses 39 to 45. Our drama now shifts scene from Nazareth in Galilee to the hill country of Judah, likely outside of Jerusalem, where Zechariah and Elizabeth live. In our first scene, Gabriel's greeting resulted in much consternation on Mary's part. Now Mary's greeting of Elizabeth will result in much celebration. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and says some amazing things about Mary and about Jesus. Stepping into this text is like walking into a wonderfully decorated room where every detail has been laid out carefully. Everything is significant and there's a lot to take in. So, but but I, we, we can't do it all. What, what I want to do is catalog a few magnificent things for you. Notice first how central these two women are to this story. The prominent male character that we met in chapter 1, Zechariah, a priest at that, fails to believe God's word. In contrast, Elizabeth and Mary are faithful and faith-filled. Mike McKinney points this out in his devotional commentary on Luke. Luke seems particularly concerned that his readers should see that the good news about Jesus is not limited to the people that were valued and honored in the society of that day. So Luke gives special attention to women as people of faith as partners with God in bringing about his plan of salvation, and as partners with Jesus in his ministry. In fact, they are the only witnesses offered for critical events at the beginning and end of the gospel. Here at the beginning, Mary receives a prophecy from Gabriel about Jesus. Gabriel doesn't go and check Joseph at this point in time and say, Hey, Joseph, need you to know some things that are going to be going on with Mary? No, Mary is the one who's told that. Elizabeth confirms what Mary heard has begun to come to pass. And at the end of Luke's gospel, it was a group of women who were met by angels at the empty tomb and were told the news of Jesus' resurrection. They told the rest of the disciples. For Luke, believing the gospel requires you to take the word of people whose testimony would not have been regarded in the courts of the day. So what we've experienced then in the short life of our local church makes complete sense. Even though some of us as men play particular leadership roles, roles we understand from Scripture are reserved 
for called and qualified men, it is you, faithful and godly women, who hold this church together. What would we be without your constant service by our sides, your exemplary faith, your wise input, and your faithful prayers? Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. That word, by the way, is hevel. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I want to thank you this morning for the way you serve among us, for the way you anchor us, for the way you care for us, not just here, but in our families. I want to thank you for your love for Jesus and for your love for all of us, which we understand is an expression of love for your Savior. So the rest of us, the non-women, the men and children, can you applaud the women among us this morning? And just thank God for them. In this text, God highlights the dignity of women and of motherhood. In fact, motherhood was always essential in God's plan of salvation. In Genesis 3, he promised that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And that promise pointed to Jesus. So Galatians 4, 4 4-5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the receive adoption as sons. That verse refers to all of God's children as sons because in God's kingdom, women alongside men receive full inheritance that was only given to sons in the culture of that day. Now, we are living in a cultural moment in the West where womanhood feels like it is increasingly endangered, in part because very educated people can no longer even agree what a woman is. We have been given greater light by which to walk here in God's word than our ever-changing feelings and the world's ever-shifting philosophies. And it's that light we're called to take into the world with conviction and compassion, humbly pointing others to Jesus, however lost in the darkness they may seem. But how can they possibly see that Jesus is who they need? The answer is right here in this story. When Mary greeted Elizabeth, God did two things to ensure that she recognized who had come into her house. John leapt in utero, and Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit, allowing her to understand exactly what was happening in that moment. This is a point at which all men read the Bible as outsiders to experiences that many women have had. Now, my kids have done a lot of things to me since they left Sam's womb. I've been headbutted. I've been kicked with a heel in my ribs, leaving a bruise for several days. I've been punched in the groin by a child just running by at church. One of the most memorable experiences I've had, though, is I was bit on my inner thigh by one of these children. And I I kid you not, I saw the constellations. Before that point, I always wondered why cartoons would have the stars spinning around someone's head. And I realized, oh, that's real. Oh, my word. And it must be God why I can't remember which of the boys did that. I really cannot. It was one of the boys, though. It was after Maya, definitely. Oh, Jacob has thrown things at me too, yeah. Accurately at the age of one. Still, even with all of those experiences, I cannot even imagine what it would be like for a baby to leap inside of me. However that must have felt, more significant is what it meant. Through spirit-given insight, Elizabeth knew why John had leapt in her womb. Someone greater than John had just come through the door in Mary's womb. I've heard a few mysterious stories of people somehow knowing that others are pregnant without being told. 
But none is as strange as this. It's likely that Mary did not yet know she was pregnant. Follow the timeline carefully. Her journey to Elizabeth's home was probably about 80 to 100 miles, so roughly the distance between here and Montego Bay. I'm told, I'm not sure how the scholars say, walking it would have taken you three or four days. I think, I don't know if I could walk that in three or four days, but then I guess I'm not built like those people were. So, it seems, based on our text, that Mary set out very soon after Gabriel's visit. So not that many days had passed in total since his announcement. Yet Elizabeth's greeting indicates that by the time she arrived at her home, Mary was pregnant. God had already begun to miraculously fulfill his word. Jesus was already growing inside of her. Back in verse 15 of this chapter, Zechariah had been told that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. When Jesus came into the presence of John, he responded with gymnastic joy. And Elizabeth, because of the illumination of the Spirit in that moment, exuberantly blessed Mary and Jesus, declaring that she had been graced with a visit from the mother of her Lord. Did she understand what she was saying? Elizabeth was saying that Mary, by virtue of the greater favor she had been shown by God, was greater than her. This, again, is a dramatic reversal. An older woman of higher social standing honoring a younger woman of lower, lower social standing. But more so, she was acknowledging that this child in Mary's womb, days since conception, was greater than her. But did she understand who he really was? Well, whether she did or didn't, Luke, for his part, wants us to recognize in Elizabeth's greeting that she was welcoming into her home one who is the Lord of all. Here's what I want you to see. Thousands of people saw Jesus in the flesh. Thousands of them saw him work miracles. They, they, they ate miraculous bread and fish. They heard him speak words from God and marveled at his sayings, and they did not recognize him as Lord. Elizabeth could not have even known that he was there apart from the Holy Spirit. Anyone who recognizes who Jesus truly is does so by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's joy and job is to reveal Jesus. Spiritual life comes by being born of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who enables us to recognize and receive Jesus. Elizabeth now becomes a model of how we come to faith. And that should bring us both joy and hope as we remember these events this Christmas. If you know Jesus, then the same Holy Spirit who conceived him revealed him to you. That's a miracle, and it's the greatest blessing that anyone can receive. If you don't know Jesus, this is what we want for you today. May God open your eyes by the work of his Spirit to see Jesus as Lord. And may he fill your heart with joy in believing in him. We'd be glad to help you to understand what that means. Today would be a memorable day to come to faith in Christ. If God has been opening your eyes today, if you've realized, I don't know if I receive Jesus as Lord. I don't know if I see him that way. I don't know if I understand that, who, that that's who he is. Please don't hesitate to speak to me or Sean after the service. Christmas is often one of those times where we see family and friends whom we don't necessarily walk closely with throughout the year. And we're often reminded in those times as we gather, as we greet, as we visit, as we share meals of their need for Jesus. This passage points us to the hope we need to hold on to as we pray for them, as we love them, as we talk to them about Jesus. 
We are not hoping that they're somehow going to figure this out for themselves one day. It's the Spirit who reveals Jesus to us as Lord. So let's continue to cry out to Him to do so for our loved ones this Christmas. The last thing that Elizabeth said to Mary was an encouragement. Tom Schreiner explains, The word for blessing, which is difficult to capture well in English, signifies happiness and well-being. Here, Mary's happiness and well-being and flourishing is tied to her faith. She is to put her trust in God's word, in the promise conveyed to her by the angel Gabriel. God had begun to fulfill his his promises to Mary. But his design wasn't just to bless her with a son, but to bless her through the Savior. Mary wasn't the end point of God's grace, but a conduit of it. She would need to continue to trust God to do all that he promised to do through Jesus. We too wait for those promises to come to pass, don't we? We weren't built for this kind of long-distance relationship with Jesus, with all respect to the Holy Spirit, God in us. We're not built for distance. We long for his second coming. We long for his never-ending rule to be visible and for his justice to come. This text reminds us that our happiness and our well-being and our flourishing while we wait is tied to our faith in him. In other words, we can be those who are waiting and are struggling because we're not trusting him. We're suffering in unnecessary ways because we're not trusting him. Or we can be those who are sustained through suffering by trusting him. May God give us grace to do so through the power of his word. In this Gospel of Luke, we've seen how Mary became the mother of our Lord. The incarnation of Christ or King that we celebrate at this time of year came to be through the conception of a child that was impossible apart from God's miraculous power. God keeps his promises. Mary was a unique recipient of of his grace, yet serves as an example of faith for all of us. And Elizabeth helps us to see how God's Spirit causes us to see what we could not otherwise see, who Jesus truly is. God moved to bring His Son, Jesus, into the world in a most extraordinary way, gracing the life of a young woman in fulfillment of His covenant promises. How should we respond to these truths? Ultimately, if we've been caught by them, if we've been caught up in Jesus' story, The only reasonable response is what Mary does next in our text in Luke. Joyful worship. Jesus is worth singing about. Have you never noticed that the first two chapters of Luke are essentially a musical? The narrative is punctuated with poetry and song. That's meant to invite us into the celebration. Now, I wish I had time to preach Mary's song, but I also need to keep my promises, and we promised we'd end by a certain time. So I won't. But I want to invite you to respond with me and with us in the most appropriate way by lifting our voices together and singing of our promise-keeping God and His Son, our Savior Jesus. So I want to invite the worship team to come so that we can sing together. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.